Welcome, everybody. We'll go ahead and get started with the final session of Evangelism for the Fainthearted. So you have should have the final set of notes that were being distributed as you were coming in. Anybody not have a set of notes that starts with page 36? Page 36, and there's a ton of pages here. I think there are 17 uh, total pages, but uh, actually it's 18 total pages, but they're front and back. So front and back this time, and I don't know whether we'll be able to get through it all or not, but we'll do the best we can. Now we don't, tonight is the last night of this semester, and we don't start up again until the 23rd of January. So well over a a month before we start back up with the midweek program. All right, tonight, page 36, as we continue evangelism for the faint-hearted, you see that the question that we were starting to answer last week was how do we do it? And we're continuing that this week. And we're looking at just samples of groups of people to whom we want to give the gospel and providing some information to aid us in doing that. And last week, uh, we spent the entire time looking at sharing the gospel with Roman Catholic friends. And now tonight, in these notes, we have information about sharing the gospel with Jewish friends and with uh, Muslim friends. And then if we get to the very end, I'll make just a few comments about sharing the gospel with family and friends in general. So evangelizing, first of all, Jewish friends on page 36. Modern expressions of Judaism are quite diverse. Many Jews today don't even profess to believe in God, while others seek to follow God's law with exacting precision. So very similar to many religions, you have the more orthodox and the more liberal. There's one unbreakable thread that binds all forms of Judaism, and that is the history of the people of Israel that is in the Old Testament. God redeems the descendants of Abraham and gives them his law and his presence making them his special people. Later, they rebelled. They're sent into exile by God. God graciously brings them back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah with some of the Hebrew people in order to rebuild the city and the temple. So just bear with as we go through some of this history because it will give you an idea of where present-day Judaism is. So during the time after the Old Testament books were written, Many Jews remained dispersed throughout the various empires that ruled during those four to five centuries before the birth of Jesus. So between the end of the history that's recorded in your Old Testament to the beginning of your New Testament with the birth of Jesus, you have four to five hundred years. And in that four to five hundred years, you have Jews scattered uh, throughout the the various empires that, that were in charge, is what that's saying. In the middle of that paragraph, official worship could only take place at the temple. So Jewish communities throughout the dispersion devoted themselves to the study of the Torah by establishing synagogues. And in these synagogues, teachers or rabbis would develop various interpretations of the laws that Israel so cherished. This is the period of time that saw a major diversification within Judaism. As many variations developed by the time of the first century, This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees came from that you read about in in the New Testament. Thankfully, many Jews in the first century came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Those early Jewish believers, like us, knew that Jesus had fulfilled the need for a temple 
along with its sacrifices and offerings. But most Jews still saw the temple as the central place where God met with them and received his prescribed worship. So you can imagine how earth-shattering it was when, in the year 70 A.D., the Romans take over Jerusalem and they destroy the, te- the temple. And from that point on, Judaism has not been has not been the same. Because of this, the Jews dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, where they again turned to the study of the Torah in synagogues to define their religious identity. They meticulously cataloged rabbinic teachings that had been passed down orally into a massive collection of volumes known as the Talmud, which means instruction or learning. So you can think of the Talmud as a collection of commentaries on the law, the Torah, that provide a huge range of ideas, of questions, applications, stories, and traditions. So with that now, now with the, with the, the Talmud and these, uh, and these interpretations and teachings of the, of the rabbis, you now begin to see a foundation for where much of Judaism today is. Uh, it's known as rabbinic Judaism. So it's Judaism, but it's Judaism that follows the teachings of these rabbis and the rabbis' teaching found in in the Talmud. Bottom of page 36, because of this, modern Judaism is essentially Talmudic in character. And by that, I mean its focus is all on the various rabbinic interpretations of the Torah. The average Jew today may assume even that he can't understand the Bible because the rabbis have been debating it and questioning it ever since the old days. For many Jews, then, religion is not simply reading Scripture and living by it, but entering into a long tradition of questions and interpretations in search of the truth. So there's your, your background. You've got God establishing the Jews and the nation Israel as his chosen people to accomplish his purpose. But the progression is that they rebel against God. They're taken into exile. God graciously returns them to the land and to Jerusalem. <clears throat> but during the four to five centuries between the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament, they don't have uh, you don't have uh, uh, the temple worship because of the dispersion of the Jews. And so they come up with a synagogue system. And then with the destruction of the temple altogether in A.D. 70, the synagogue system becomes the way Jews carry out worship wherever they, wherever they are. And it's uh, through that that the rabbis uh, become the, the central leaders of worship for, for the Jews. And the rabbis have their own interpretations and different schools of interpretation of what the Torah, the law, teaches and those collections of teachings are found in what's called the, the Talmud. So a Jewish person today is, is following the teachings of the rabbis through the, the Talmud. And they're doing that either strictly or more loosely or just not at all such that being Jewish for them is not a religious matter but simply a matter of culture. And those are the three, then, types of Judaism, the major types of Judaism that exist today. Top of page 37. You've got Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Orthodox Judaism, first of all. 
On one level, Orthodox Jews are easy for Christians to understand because they believe in the Hebrew Bible and they take it seriously. But the number of Orthodox Jews worldwide is comparatively small. For Orthodox Jews, keeping the law is literally, as literally as possible is the hope of their salvation. They try to be good moral uh, and get a good Jewish education. They observe the dietary laws by keeping kosher. They obey the ceremonial laws of the Jewish holidays, wear certain symbols and clothing, and keep the Sabbath. To ensure that they keep the Sabbath, they refrain from all work, and they go to extremes like not driving or using electricity. They ask God to be merciful when they fall short. They observe the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur, the most sacred holiday in Judaism, not by offering a sacrificial lamb, as was done in Leviticus 16, since there is no temple to do that. Rather, atonement comes through heartfelt repentance and recommitment to observing the law. Like most Jews, the Orthodox don't conceive of original sin as making someone totally unable to please God the way we do. They say we're born with an inclination to evil, but also an inclination to good. We have to learn the right interpretation of God's law so that we can follow the good. So that's one approach to Judaism, and that is orthodox. And so that's the most strict observance of Judaism. But then you kind of have a middle uh, middle way, and that is conservative Judaism. Conservative Judaism also seeks to follow the teachings of the rabbis, but with more relevance to modern times. Jewish people in this stream may still wear a head covering or a yarmulke or a kippah, but their dress will be more contemporary than the Orthodox. They still keep kosher, they uphold basic theological beliefs, but they allow men and women to sit together in the synagogue and they hold services in English as well as Hebrew. So a conservative, someone who's a a conservative Jew, uh, practicing conservative Judaism is not liberal like we're going to see with Reform Judaism, but not as strict as, as the Orthodox. And then the final uh, category is Reform Judaism. It's the most theologically liberal. Reform Jews see the Bible as a collection of stories or myths. Most don't go to synagogue regularly, similar to Christians who only go on Easter or Christmas. They probably think of themselves more as cultural Jews than as religious. So being Jewish still matters. Having that Jewish heritage still matters, but it doesn't matter so much religiously. Therefore, it's not uncommon to find Reformed Jews who are agnostic, whose Judaism consists in a sense of tradition and morality, but not belief in God. Some abandoned faith in God after the Holocaust and reinterpreted their Judaism to make it mainly about ethics and values. Evangelizing to a Reformed Jew from the Old Testament can be difficult because they don't have knowledge of the Bible, and if they do... They often don't believe it. So how do you approach then, with that background, how do you approach Jewish friends with with the gospel? Well, Orthodox and conservative Jews essentially practice a religion of works, righteousness, grounded in their history and tradition. So with these friends, we have to emphasize our incurable sinful nature and desperate need for a perfect Savior to bear our sin. Reformed Jews, on the other hand, are quite similar to our secular and agnostic neighbors. We need to invite them to consider the possibility of the existence of God and the historical resurrection of Jesus. Now, all of that simply says that the basic evangelism strategy with Jews is really what we've already seen in general in this series. Namely, make friends, invite people into your life, 
pray for opportunities to share the gospel, and then share it with them faithfully, particularly with Jewish friends. Use that make friends step to learn about their interpretation and experience of Judaism. So ask good questions about what they believe and how they view some of the major historical events and views that we've just talked about. So you can ask things like, do you try to obey the Torah? How can you obey all of those commandments? What do you do if you sin and you need atonement? How does your Jewish background influence the way you live? Do you pray to God? And if so, what do you ask him for? What's it mean to be orthodox or conservative or reform, depending on what they identify as? One of the best ways to build a friendship and take a conversation towards spiritual things at the same time is to talk about their traditions and holidays. Ask if they keep a kosher diet, and if so, why? When a relative dies, Jews often visit with a grieving family for a whole week called sitting Shiva. Ask what that means to them. Are they traveling home for Passover? Find out what they believe the Passover means and talk to them about how you see Jesus as the great Passover lamb who shed his blood so that God's judgment of death passes over us as was foreshadowed in Exodus 12. You've got Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that's a key holiday to discuss because it relates to how Jews seek atonement through fasting, repentance, and good works. Most Jews also celebrate, celebrate Purim, which remembers the events of the Book of Esther. But for many, it's become a kind of decadent holiday of wearing costumes, drinking, partying, and having a good time. So consider reading Esther with a Jewish friend and exploring how it's really all about God's plan to preserve a people for himself, which he ultimately does through Christ. And you can ask about Hanukkah or Rosh Hashanah, Sukkoth, and other holidays and what those mean to your Jewish friend. So ultimately, while knowing some background about Judaism and discussing these holidays are good ideas to get started, there's no substitute for studying the word of God with someone and letting it do its work. And we'll talk about that now in just uh, just a moment. But we've had some folks walk in since I started. And did everybody get a copy of the notes that, that we're looking at? Anybody not have a copy of the notes? Everybody has? Everybody has? Wow, what an efficient setup we have here. No matter when you come in, you're able to get the, uh, the notes. It's terrific. All right. Thanks to the uh, guys who are doing that. Bottom of page 38 then. Biblical themes for you to explore with a Jewish friend. Thankfully, many Jews already respect the Old Testament. You could always summarize a couple of verses in a brief conversation, but if you can, try to sit down over coffee with a Jewish friend and look in depth at one of these themes, studying each of the verses in their context. Now, at the top of page 39, we just make a a helpful note about talking about the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, which which is perfectly proper because... The sacrificial system and the worship system uh, of the first part of your Bible, as you hear me say a lot, uh, has been done away in, in Christ. And so old and new are appropriate. But if you're a Jewish person, you don't believe there is a new. And if there's not a new, then there's, then there's not an old. And so, top of page 39, since Jewish folks often feel strange about the term Old Testament, you might talk about the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh which is the Hebrew, its Hebrew title. So if you do Old Testament, it's not the end of the world, but just be aware of that sensitivity. 
And the following shows how to get to Christ from the Torah, the first five books of the Tanakh. Since Jewish people uphold these books as the most important part of Scripture. So the law of Moses, the Torah, uh, is the most important part of the Bible for a Jewish person. And so you could take time showing that in those first five books, that there is teaching about the one who, who was to come. The coming king, you see on page 39. And then we have a number of verses and passages listed that show that there is this king who is to come. If you look at the second to the last bullet there that starts with the Jewish folks may not be used to the idea of seeing a messianic figure in the Torah. So you've got all of those passages in those first five books that do point to a coming uh, Messiah. But they might not be used to seeing it there. They associate these books with the language of law, not the language of a coming king. So it may be useful to show that all of this language about a ruler with universal dominion gets picked up in one of the most famous messianic prophecies, and that is the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. So you can connect that then to show them that it's not just uh, in the Torah, as important as that is, but since they don't necessarily think of the Torah that way, show them that that's carried over into the prophets as well. And Daniel is one example of that. And then the last bullet from there, it may be useful to study the first couple of chapters of Matthew to see how Jesus' genealogy gets traced back to David and Judah and Abraham and to see the Magi come to pay him tribute as was predicted in Genesis 49. So all of those passages that we have above that you could talk with them about Now you can go to the first couple of chapters of Matthew to show that those very things are happening in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So you've got the coming king. And then there's God's provision of forgiveness. We know that the Messiah did not only come to be Israel's king, but also to provide lasting forgiveness for those who repent and believe. It's a key difference between Christianity and Judaism. For Jews... The Messiah is to bring deliverance for the Jews, to destroy any enemies of the Jews, and to bring world peace. They didn't conceive of the Messiah primarily bringing reconciliation between man and God. We can show from the Torah that reconciliation is man's greatest need and that it is God who would provide it through a greater Passover lamb. And so you can start with Exodus chapter 34. That tells us that God is merciful and gracious, but he also doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. So how can God be both of those? How can he be forgiving because he's merciful and and gracious, but at the same time be a just God and not allow the guilty, that would be all of us, to go unpunished? And as your Jewish friend probably well knows in the Torah, God answers that question by providing the sacrifices that we see in the book of Leviticus, And then you could read passages from Leviticus. That then, third bullet, should remind your Jewish friend of the Passover lamb described in Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And these concepts, fourth bullet, prepare you well to bring up passages like John 1.29, where John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or even you could go through Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 that explain how Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrifices. So the coming king, 
how it is that we, we get forgiveness, all of that tied to the first part of your Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And then there are all of the prophecies about Jesus. Messianic prophecies. Predictions of the Messiah. Of course, the Messianic hope in the Hebrew Bible only becomes clearer throughout salvation history. So you want to explore some key prophecies from the writings and the prophets with your Jewish friend too. So here's a sampling of some of the clearest ones. So you've got the Torah. We've looked at the connections in the Torah to the sacrificial system, to the prediction of a, a coming king. But then there's beyond the Torah in the prophets and into the writings. The writings is a section of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, first part of your Bible. Uh, that includes the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of, Song of Solomon. And so you see in the list on page 40, you've got prophets like uh, Micah. You've got a historical book like Second Samuel, another prophet in Zechariah, and then uh, from uh, two from the Psalms. So that's from the section called the Writings, and then Isaiah chapter 53. So Isaiah, or excuse me, Micah 5.2 predicts that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Second Samuel chapter 7 tells us about God's promise to David that one of his sons would reign forever. Zechariah chapter 9 predicts the Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey, which Jesus fulfilled. Psalm 22 previews the Messiah's suffering on the cross, including the mockers, Jesus' thirst, the dividing of his garments, and the piercing of his hands and feet. Psalm 16 foretells how the Messiah would not forever be abandoned to death. And Peter uses this very passage in Acts chapter 2 to show that Christ's resurrection was predicted by God. And then the crown jewel of Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah is in Isaiah 53. And, you know, at this time of year, you'll be hearing a lot of Handel's Messiah and unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. So there are a bunch of these passages from Isaiah that are woven into Handel's Messiah. But then uh, its apex is in Isaiah chapter 53. The suffering, he will be one who suffers, uh, the suffering servant. And uh, the chastisement that brings peace to us was laid upon him. So the crown jewel of these prophecies is Isaiah 53. Not surprisingly, this text has received many different interpretations from Jewish scholars who sadly seem to have a vested interest in explaining how it could not be about the Messiah. Remember that the Jewish idea of a Messiah is mainly that of a victorious king, but here you see a king who would also be God's suffering servant who would be pierced for the transgressions of God's people and he would take their punishment. With that then, if you go to the Gospels, You see the connection between all of this stuff that the Tanakh says about the Messiah coming to fruition, becoming reality in Jesus. And so in your New Testament, studying the Gospels. And so at this point, we see why it's so important for our Jewish neighbors to learn about Jesus himself from the Gospels, the writings of the Jews who followed him and knew him. Just the idea of reading the New Testament can be a huge obstacle to a Jewish friend, but if they can read a gospel with you, they'll quickly notice the Jewishness of Jesus. Getting to read the gospel with a Jewish friend is so crucial. Jesus was culturally Jewish. He wasn't a Southern Baptist. All his disciples were Jewish. All the New Testament writers except Luke were Jewish. 
It's a simple fact which uh, may make your friend more willing to read it, but open up to a book like Matthew and your friend will quickly learn that Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. Matthew one twenty three. He fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that his name would be Emmanuel, and Matthew interprets what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. Or Matthew 9, 6, Jesus has authority to forgive sins, and all the rabbis knew that only God could do that. In the same vein, you look at the divine prerogatives that Jesus exercises in Matthew through his authority over nature and demons and disease and death. And then you note the reason Jesus said that he would die. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, do note that most Jews will find the idea that Jesus is God nearly incomprehensible. We shouldn't shy away from this since it's the clear teaching of Scripture, but it may help our Jewish friends simply to contrast Jesus with the great Old Testament figures using Christ's own words. Abraham, Moses, David, and the great prophets never said that they would give my life as a ransom for many. Only Jesus would say things like, I'm the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Since some of those clearest statements are in the book of John, then that would be a good book to study together. And then, of course, pray that God will open the heart of your Jewish friend. All right, so that's that's an approach to take. It gives you an idea of various categories of Jews that we have today and how they practice and what they believe, and then how to bring their Bible, uh, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and show the connection between that which they already believe, if they're not a Reformed Jew, and uh, its fulfillment in, in Jesus. And then here are just some common questions that Jewish friends might have quickly. Bottom of page 41, a theological question. Where was God during the, the Holocaust? If you need help with uh, some of that, why does God let bad things uh, happen to people? Uh, we have a series on that that I did a few years ago during the Discovering God Hour. It's on our, on our website. Where is God when it hurts uh, is, the, is the name of that. So you can go and click on it. But if you look on page 42, in general... You want to remind people of these three things. That God hates evil and he will judge all those who have committed terrible atrocities and who don't repent. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the Lord never approves of evil. The Lord overrules evil. The Lord uses evil for his purposes. But he doesn't design evil. He doesn't uh, coerce people into evil. Evil people do what evil people are inclined to do, and God uses what they do in order to accomplish his His good purposes. But he hates the evil. Do you guys remember that I said in a sermon a week ago Sunday, God has the ability to look through those two lenses. He can look through the narrow lens, but he can look through the widest lens as well. And when he looks at an ev- any event, but take an evil event, he can look at it through the narrow lens and see it for what it is. It's evil, it's bad, and he calls it that in Scripture. But then God also has the ability to see everything that leads up to and comes out of even that evil act. And God can providentially use all of that to accomplish ultimately his good purpose. That's why the Bible can say truthfully that God works all things. 
together for good. And the all things include even evil. But God hates evil and he'll judge it. And God works good through man's sin, even sin, even if we can't comprehend how. As I've been saying, you have a great example of that in the story of, of Joseph. And then ultimately, you look at number three there. Not just our Jewish friends, but lots of people say, hey, where is God when all of these bad things are going on? And if, if you question God's character, the best way to look at the character of God is to look at the God, this God who became man. Look at God the Son. Look at Jesus. If you, if you have an accusation about God, if you have a question in your mind about what God is like, is God really good? Look at Jesus. If you have a question in your mind about God and suffering, look at Jesus. Why? Because the goodness of God is displayed in its magnificence in the fact that God himself has come to be man and this God suffered not for anything he has done, but for the things we have done. And so if your question is about suffering and whether God who allows suffering is a good God, just understand that Jesus tasted unjust suffering as well. And so he has compassion for all who have suffered unjustly, Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He experienced a horrific death, even though he, like no one else who had ever lived, was perfectly innocent. So that's the first objection. Where was God in things like the Holocaust? But a second question is a cultural and historical one. Isn't Christianity anti-Semitic? The reason that comes up is because, in fact, In the name of Christ, historically, many people have been anti-Semitic. Jews were historically called Christ killers. They're the ones who killed Christ. And so therefore there was this animosity from Christians toward toward Jews because of that. And Jewish people, many of them know that that history. So isn't Christianity anti-Semitic? We have some suggestions here. Uh, numbers one and two for how to deal with that. One is to acknowledge the truth of it, as I said, but point out the Jewish foundations of our of our faith. And then finally, Jews considering Christ may have a deeply personal question. If I believe in Jesus, does that mean I'll stop being Jewish? And sadly, opposition to Jesus as Messiah has become so characteristic of Judaism, many think if they accept Christ, they won't be Jewish anymore. Of course, it's not what Paul Peter, John, and the other disciples thought. For them, the most Jewish thing in the world was to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the Messiah, as Jesus and uh, Jesus as their Lord. Still, we have to help our Jewish friends count the cost. And so, you know, don't minimize the fact that there is a cost to this. And Jesus said, you must love me more than uh, father and and mother ultimately, and that's what the top of page forty three is about. So that's some help in evangelizing Jewish friends. Now about Muslim friends. Middle of page forty three. Muhammad is the founder of Islam. He was born in five seventy in Mecca. By the time he was six, both parents had died. He was raised by his grandfather, later his uncle. He was a traitor, and he married a woman, Khadija, who was 15 years older. 
After his first wife died, he embarked on a course of polygamy, in which he married 11 different women, including one that was either six or nine years old. In addition, he had sexual relations with slave girls that he owned. In the year 610, he became a prophet. He claimed to have received revelation during times of meditation. He received this revelation from the angel Gabriel. Those revelations continued until he died in the year 632, and they comprised the contents of the Muslim holy book, the Quran. Some Muslims teach that Muhammad was illiterate, but there's evidence to the contrary based on his status as a traitor and based on several hadiths. The hadiths are Muhammad's sayings that are not recorded in the Quran. By the time of his death, this revelation that he claimed included and that he claimed included the Quran with its 114 surahs or chapters and a larger number of hadiths. Muhammad taught that there was only one God. His early revelations came in Mecca, a city in present-day Saudi Arabia that was known for polytheism and animism. There were many shrines and temples. Many visitors traveled there for religious purposes. Converts to Muhammad's teaching were few at first, but after about 10 years, they numbered in the thousands. They identified their belief as Islam, meaning submission to God and themselves as Muslims, meaning those who submit to God. Let me start stop there. Does anybody remember uh, when 9-11 happened and in the uh, immediate aftermath of that? There was great anger uh, amongst Americans at Muslims. And the politicians were trying to keep that down. I remember uh, President George W. Bush uh, getting on television and trying to instruct us all on what Islam means. And he said, Islam means peace. Um, well, you know, I understand the desire to try to keep, you know, people from going out and taking vigilante justice. But you can't change the names of, <laughs> of what it is. Islam does not mean peace. It's never meant peace. Uh, it means not not that there aren't lots of Muslims who desire peace. That's not my point. But Islam does not mean peace. Islam means submission to God. And Muslims are those who submit to God. Middle of that last paragraph. Eventually, their number was so large that the leaders of Mecca could no longer tolerate them. After all, nothing ruins the business of idol worship like the incessant claim that there's only one God. So what happened is, here's Muhammad. He was successful over time. That seemed people converted to monotheism, one God. And in Mecca, you had lots of people making lots of money off of many gods and all of the trinkets and all of the uh, accoutrements of worship that went with it. And so they didn't want him there anymore. And so in 622, Muhammad and his followers fled to another city in Saudi Arabia, Medina. This flight, this fleeing, was known as the Hijira, which means flight. And it marked the beginning of an independent Muslim community. That date, 622, marks the beginning of the Islamic year, which falls differently each year since they use a lunar calendar based on the time between the two moons. By 630, Muhammad had returned to Mecca with a strong enough force to now conquer it. He removed all the idols from the city. By his death in 632, he was the leader of much of the Arabian Peninsula. He died in 632. And after him, a number of leaders vied to be his successor. And the debates about who the legitimate successors 
were continues to this day. So this is where you find, and we're going to explain in the next paragraph, but this is where you get the beginnings of Sunni and Shia, and then some of the splinters off of Sunni and Shia. And that is, after Muhammad died, you have this battle about who's to be his rightful successor. You had relatives of his that claimed that mantle, and they began these rival factions of Islam. Sunni Islam, Shia Islam. Now, top that top paragraph, it's important to note that Muhammad did not consider himself a founder of a new religion, but he figured he saw himself as a prophet who completed and perfected the religion that God had previously revealed in both Judaism and in Christianity. Within a few years of his death, Islam began to splinter into these factions. The most familiar divisions are the Sunnis and the Shiites, the Sunnis are the largest. They're actually about 80%. And these are the more militant factions, uh, or there are the more militant factions, who follow a sect known as Wahhabism, named for an 18th century reform leader who found support in the house of Saud, the ruling family of Saudi Arabia. So did you guys know that? That when we think of the country and the name Saudi Arabia, <laughs> you've got... Saudi is actually a modifier for Arabia. It's, it's, it's saying this is the Saud's Arabia. It, in effect, belongs to the house of Saud. So that's a, that's a group of people. Uh, and so, and within that, within Saudi Arabia, where Islam was founded, Mecca and Medina, but within that, in the 1700s, the 18th century, you have one named Wahhab who founded Wahhabism. And Wahhabism is an extremely radical version of Islam. It's the official version of Islam in Saudi Arabia. And it is no accident then that the hijackers on 9-11, where did they all come from? Where did Osama bin Laden actually come from. So, and, and just as a, an aside, the politics of our, the United States relationship to Saudi Arabia has always been a mystery. It's always been a mystery to me. It's always been a mystery to me how we treat Saudi Arabia with such relative kid gloves. And given some of the, the hostility that emanates from Saudi Arabia toward the great Satan, uh, that would be us. But, they they have uh, they have they wield great power over even leaders in in our country. So Wahhabism, the Wahhabists, in that bottom of that second paragraph, tried to return Islam to a more primitive form. The Taliban literally means students of the Quran, and Al Qaeda literally the base are examples of the Wahhabists, as was Osama bin Laden, as as well. Now, page 44. What about Islam and violence? Islam and terrorism? I mean, what is the deal with, <laughs> with Islam and terrorism? And it is, it, is not, it is not going to fly for anybody who cares about truth to do what, uh, frankly, our president for eight years tried to do in uh, 
Barack Obama and his entire administration, honestly, uh, what the news media that followed him in trying to do, and that is downplay the reality and the truth of violence that emanates from Islam. I mean, you can be truthful about it, but then also be uh, also be wise in the way you think about it and the policies you make toward it. But you first have to be truthful about it. And it is no accident that the vast majority of terrorist acts are committed by adherence to Islam around the world. It's just a it's just a fact, and you know most people know that. And so when they hear the government trying to downplay that, they just don't buy it. But what is the what are the roots of that? Islam and violence. Well, page forty four. There are the hundred and fourteen surahs, that is chapters or parts of the Quran are not listed in the chronological order in which Muhammad recited them, but rather they're listed in the order of length from the longest to the shortest. And we'll see why that's important in a minute. But if you read the Quran, you're not reading it chronologically as Muhammad gave it. It's arranged from the longest to the shortest. But we're going to see what happens if you do arrange them chronologically. If one places the passages in chronological order, an interesting pattern emerges that corresponds to the circumstances in which Muhammad found himself. The Kaaba, a rectangular building in the city of Mecca, contained many idols and was the center of worship for the pagan Arabs at the time of Muhammad. Arabs from all over Arabia came to Mecca for an annual pilgrimage to worship these idols. Now we stop there. That black cube, have you all ever seen pictures of the pilgrimages to to Mecca and you see you know just tens of thousands of people marching around this that's this that's this thing the black cube when Muhammad began preaching in 610 he was still living in Mecca his fellow tribesmen became increasingly angry because of the condemnation of their idolatry 90 of the 114 surahs originated during the 13 years he continued living in Mecca These surahs contain no instructions about fighting. In spite of the severe persecution, beatings, expulsion from their homes, and death threats to which his small band of followers were subjected. So, see that? If you put them in chronological order, 13 years he's uh, in a minority in Mecca. And he's increasingly having hostility directed at him and at his followers, But despite that, there's nothing about threats or violence or any of that. The last 24 surahs are from the time after 622. Remember, that's when he left Mecca. And they migrated to Medina to escape the persecution in Mecca. There, Muhammad was made the political leader of the city, and his followers increased significantly. The teaching about jihad or fighting in the way of Allah began to develop in these Medinan surahs. So here's what that here's what that shows you is that Muhammad didn't talk about didn't talk about killing people until he was in a position to kill people. That's really what it means. When he was in Mecca, he wasn't in a position to do that. But then where you get the the passages in the Quran that talk about doing that, that's when he had the upper hand. This is why, then, you will find people quoting different parts of the Quran, and some say it's peaceful and all of that, because there are these passages that say that. But those were the passages that 
Muhammad recited when they were in the minority in, in Mecca. Once they got the majority, then it was kill the infidels and all of that. All right, Islamic culture. For, so this is why then, why do we have, why are Muslims then given to that? They're following the orders of what they find in the Quran to take over. Islamic culture. For Muslims, their religion is a complete way of life with implications for virtually everything. They have various cultural traditions that affect many areas of their lives, both public and private, like dress, relationships between men and women, marriage, food, even hygiene. The cultural traditions have religious underpinnings in many cases, but they're not really the issues that divide us. It's the belief system that underlies those that really divides us. So in Islam, you have the the famous five pillars. And a faithful Muslim is to do these five things. Confess the Shahada. I bear witness that there is no God but God and that Muhammad is the messenger of God. They are to pray and there are the five daily prayers. They are to give alms, fast, and then, if possible, in their lifetime, make a pilgrimage to, to Mecca. Now, what's the authority for Islam? Well, it is Muhammad through his sayings recorded in the Quran. So I want to spend some time familiarizing us with differences between the Quran and the Bible and contradictions between the Quran and the Bible. But this issue of authority... On page 45, like we looked at last week with Roman Catholicism, is always the major issue with everybody. From where do you derive the authority for what you believe? What's the basis for what you believe and how you pursue your life? And so with Roman Catholicism last week, remember we saw that it's not just the Bible, but rather it's the Bible and tradition and the magisterium of the of the church, and you have whole dogmas that are not hinted at in the Bible, but they are just as much authoritative teaching in Roman Catholicism as is the virgin birth and other important doctrines that are taught in the Bible. The immaculate conception of Mary by her mother, for instance. It's not found in the Bible, not found in the Roman Catholic Bible, but the church has the authority to pronounce that according to Roman Catholicism. So the issue of authority is always foundational. It's true for Judaism. So, so what is the Bible comprised of? If the New Testament is not true, well, then, of course, Christianity is not true. And likewise now for Islam. What about the authority of the Quran? Bottom of page 45, both Islam and Christianity have writings in which they, to which they appeal as final authorities. The Quran is the holy book of Islam and is believed by Muslims to be the word of Allah as revealed to Muhammad. The Bible is the holy book of Christianity. Are they consistent? If not, how can one determine which is right? Well, the Bible offers a test for the authenticity of a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken 
by the Lord. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Now, the Christian scriptures offer numerous predictions, prophecies, regarding the coming and the career of Jesus the Messiah. The Quran, though, offers no predictions. But it does make some claims that can be objectively evaluated. And it makes these three in particular. The Quran confirms the teaching of the Jewish and Christian scriptures. So that's one claim made by the Quran that it confirms the teaching of the Jewish and the Christian scriptures. Secondly, that it makes clearer the teaching of both of those. And thirdly, that Muhammad is actually foretold. Muhammad is predicted in the Jewish and Christian scriptures. So let's look at those. Does the Quran confirm the Bible? The Quran says this, O ye people of the book, believe in what we have now revealed, confirming what was already with you. So that's where the Quran makes that claim, that it confirms what you already had in your own scriptures. But at many points, it contradicts the teaching of the Bible. Here's one, the death of Jesus. In the Bible, Jesus clearly taught that he would die and be raised from the dead. Matthew 16 is one such example. Jesus also said that his death and resurrection was what the prophets before him had foretold. You see that in passages like Luke 24. And Jesus explained the meaning of his death in Matthew 20 to give his life as a ransom for many. But bottom of page 46, notice the Quran teaches about the death of Jesus on the cross something different. It says that he never really died. We, the Jews, slew the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, the messenger of God, so they're quoting now the Jews. This is what the Jews say. We slew him. And then they, the Quran claims, yet they did not slay him, neither crucified him. Only a likeness of that was shown to them. And they slew him not of certainty. No, indeed. God raised him up to him. God is almighty, all wise. Do you see that that is a flat out denial of the crucifixion of Jesus? That he was not slain. That God raised him up. That God brought him up to heaven. Jesus taught, top of page 47, that his death on the cross was to pay for our sins and it was part of God's work that Jesus came to perform. But the Quran, in the Quran, Jesus' death on the cross is no death at all. And so it does not confirm the Bible at this most important point. And here's some others, the account of Noah. The Quran also incorrectly retells a number of biblical accounts. Here are just two brief examples. The Bible clearly teaches that all of Noah's sons came into the ark with him, his three sons. But in the Quran, one of the sons did not come into the ark. Notice Surah 11. And Noah called to his son, who was standing apart from the ark, Embark with us, my son, and be thou not with the unbelievers. He said, I will take refuge in a mountain that shall defend me from the water. And the waves came between them, and he was drowned. That's what the Quran teaches. That one of Jesus' sons, was, or uh, Noah's sons, was did not go into the ark. So the story of Noah does not confirm the Bible's teaching. Then you got the plagues of Egypt, and the Bible records in great detail what the plagues were that God sent upon Egypt. And you see the ten there. Bottom of page 47 in the Quran, though, we're told that there was also a flood. So we let loose upon them the flood and the locusts, the lice and the frogs, the blood, distinct signs. But they waxed proud and were a sinful people. And so the Quran does not confirm the teaching of the Bible. And further, top of page 48, 
It doesn't make clearer the teaching of the Bible. The Quran says the Quran is not such as can be produced by other than Allah. On the contrary, it is a confirmation of revelations that went before it and a fuller explanation of the book. Verily, this Quran doth explain to the children of Israel most of the matters in which they disagree. So this is going to make clearer the teaching, but it doesn't make clearer the teaching on, for example, the death of Jesus, as we've already seen, but also on a very central event in the Old Testament and then referred to in the New Testament, and that is the offer of Isaac in sacrifice by Abraham. The Bible teaches very clearly that Abraham was commanded to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. In Genesis chapter 22, God says, directly take your son, your only son, Isaac. The rest of the Bible also teaches clearly that Isaac was the son that Abraham offered. Hebrews chapter 11, God tested Abraham, but by faith Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And then in James chapter 2, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? The account of Abraham's sacrifice is also told in the Quran. The account is not very clear. In particular, the identity of the son is not stated. We gave him, Abraham, news of a gentle son. And when he reached the age when he could work with him, his father said to him, My son, I dreamt that I was sacrificing you. Tell me what you think. He replied, Father, do as you are bidden. God willing, you shall find me steadfast. And when they had both submitted to God, and Abraham had laid down his son prostrate upon his face, we called out to him, saying, Abraham, you have fulfilled your vision. Since the identity of Abraham's son is not mentioned, this has led to all kinds of confusion for the Muslim community. One of Islam's greatest historians says that very thing. He freely admits that the early Muslim theologians were not sure which son Abraham offered. Some thought it was Isaac, others thought it was Ishmael. In fact, he even says that there are reliable hadiths from Muhammad, some of which say it was Isaac and others which say it was Ishmael. And you have a quote to that effect at the top of page 49. So this is from this historian of the Quran who is saying we're messed up on who it was. And then the next paragraph, this confusion comes to a climax with the Muslim festival that I can't pronounce. So I won't try. This festival occurs during the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. At this festival, an animal is sacrificed to remember the time when Abraham offered, not Isaac, but Ishmael. The Bible clearly teaches that the son Abraham offered was Isaac. The Quran does not say who the son was, but the result of the Quran's unclear teaching is that Muslims reject the clear teaching of the Bible and instead think that the son was Ishmael. And then you've got the, the son of God. And again, the Quran does not make clearer. In the Bible, there's a lot of teaching about the Son of God, and that teaching is quite clear. The Quran also has much to say about the Son of God, but it doesn't confirm or make clearer what the Bible says. So you see there listed Matthew 16, Matthew 26. But throughout the Quran, it denies that Jesus is the Son of God. Surah 4, the Messiah, Jesus, Son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle and his word, which he cast to Mary. 
The Christians say the Messiah is the Son of God. That is the utterance of their mouths conforming with the unbelievers before them. God assailed them. How they are perverted. They say God has begotten the Son. God forbid. So you see, friends, you can't harmonize Islam and Christianity. I mean, to these central issues with regard to who Jesus is. Central issues as to what Jesus did, namely dying on on the cross. And then is Muhammad foretold in the Bible. Bottom of page 49. Those who follow the messenger, that is Muhammad, the prophet, who can neither read nor write, whom they will find described in the Torah and the gospel which are with them. So they, you will find in the Torah and in the gospel described who? None other than Muhammad. Now where is Muhammad supposed to be described in, in, the, in the Bible? Well, the major passage that's pointed to, to to make this claim is in Jesus' words in John 14, 15, and 16. And the night before he died, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave you. Many of you are familiar with this. I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to send you someone else who's going to come after me. Remember that? But, of course, those verses identify who that someone else is. It's the Holy Spirit. But Muslims take that to be a reference to a prediction about Muhammad. I've actually talked with Muslims, co-workers, who have told me. They've told me these things about Ishmael. They've told me these things about predicting. Uh, so they obviously don't know the Bible very well. And then I point out things like at the top of page page 50. So in the pages that follow, you have key divergences between biblical Christianity and Islam. And I encourage you to read those. What Muslims believe about God, what they believe about sin, uh, what they believe about forgiveness. All of those are divergent from biblical Christianity. And if you bring those up, it gives you then an opportunity to give the truth of the gospel about the character of God, his absolute holiness. He cannot tolerate sin. He can't simply just say, uh, I'm going to let you all off the hook. There has to be a payment for sin. Justice much must be done. So how is that done? All of that's different than in Islam. In Islam, God can just say, I forgive you. And there doesn't have to be an atonement. God can just say, I forgive you. But in Christianity, that can't happen. And we explain that in the, in the pages that follow. I don't have time. You'll be glad to know to go, through, to go through all of that. Now, one more thing I'd like to tell you about Islam. And then if you'll turn to page 40, or excuse me, 53, the last page, just turn your notes to the back. But one last thing I'd like to tell you about Islam is they make this claim that the Quran is consistent with the Bible. But we've seen a number of places where that's not true. So here's what a a Muslim will tell you when you point these contradictions out. They will say, ah, but that's because the Jews corrupted your scriptures. The Jews corrupted your scriptures. The reason there's a discrepancy, see, they used to agree, the Bible and the Quran. But they don't agree because the Bible's been changed. And it's been changed by the Jews. Now, you know the hostility between the Arabs and the the Jews, right? And so you will you will hear this. And and I've I've talked to Muslims. I've heard this. 
The Jews are corrupt people and they corrupted the scriptures. Doesn't your own Bible talk about how corrupt they are? And when you read in the Gospels, you read of you know, John, the, the Apostle John, will write of the Jews conspiring together against Jesus and all of that. And so they say, look at that. Now just follow this for a minute. The claim is that these corrupt Jews corrupted the Scriptures. One way we know that the Jews are corrupt is because the Scriptures tell us that. Now think with me. If you're a corrupt Jew, corrupting the Scriptures, wouldn't you take out the parts that say you're corrupt? You see, they got the idea that the Jews are corrupt from the very Scriptures that they say the Jews corrupted. So that's one big problem. But here's an insurmountable problem as well. They say, you know, these used to agree, but then the Jews corrupted them. But see, that's now just a matter of manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. Because remember now, when the Quran was given. The Quran was given in the 7th century, in the 600s, right? 600s. We have today manuscripts of the New Testament that predate that. And they don't, they haven't been corrupted. So the thing that got it wrong isn't the Bible, it's the Quran, it's Islam. But that's the claim that will be made. So those are your, those are your answers to that. Finally, page 53, bottom. You know, we looked last week at Roman Catholics, Judaism, Jewish friends, Muslim friends, but then there's just your friends and family in general. When engaging those of a different belief system, as we've seen the last two sessions, we're focused on truth. Often, however, we're interacting with those who may not be overtly opposed to what we believe, but are instead indifferent to it. Therefore, We seek to make points of contact with them as we explored in the session titled, How Do We Relate? And I remind you that that's back on pages 17 through 21. We seek to make connections via what we have in common, namely that we're both made in the image of God and that we both live in a fallen world and we both have to deal with the same kinds of problems that come from that. And now I can show you a difference in how I'm able to navigate life in a fallen world as opposed to how you deal with it because of what Christ has done and because of the guidance that I receive from his word. So we seek to make those connections via the image of God and life in a fallen world, and then we actively look for openings to share the gospel. All right, time to quit. So we're done for this semester, and we won't start up again until January the 23rd. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this semester that we've been able to have together to think about overcoming our faint-heartedness so that we can give the evangel, the gospel, that we engage in the process of evangelism. I pray as a result of our time of reviewing the beauty of the gospel and the purpose for the gospel, namely your glory, having thought about the audience to whom we go and the barriers, the spiritual barriers that exist there and how those are overcome by your word and your spirit, having looked at the things that we have in common with those to whom we go. Lord, help us to take advantage of those, to be mindful of those, alert to the open doors of opportunity that you provide. 
And Lord, uh, we've reviewed what the gospel is. Help us to be clear about it and present it in a winsome uh, way that says we do this because we love you and we want the best for you. So Lord, help us to be your evangelists and your ambassadors and to put into practice what we've learned together. Help us to do that even this week. We ask you, Lord, to guide us uh, over the next several days, grant us safety, and bring us back together this Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.